In your Bibles, if you'd like, to Acts chapter 6. We're actually covering three chapters of the book of Acts this morning, uh, as we did last week, uh, discussing what it is that God is doing as he is beginning the process here in the book of Acts of building his church. As we come to the book of Acts in chapter 6, we find out that his ways of building are sometimes really different than the ways we think that things ought to be built. Anyone who's used Google Maps knows that it doesn't always lead you to the right destination, right? But sometimes it may even lead you to the correct destination, but in the wrong way. Uh, we use Google Maps a lot overseas. We didn't have Wi-Fi or uh, didn't have Internet access, so we had to use uh, downloaded maps ahead of time. And I didn't know before we went to Greece that um, when they download maps to your phone, they don't download all the details. They download the majority of the details. We um, were on the island of Naxos, just Melissa and I. We rented a small uh, ATV to get around. A number of people do that. You, yes, share the road with trucks and whatever else as you drive uh, you and the open air and a four-wheeler. And we were told that there was this really great bakery in the center of the island, toward the center of the island. And we thought that'd be fun. It sounds like it's about half an hour out. And so we started driving uh, toward the center of the island, following the directions of Google Maps. And uh, eventually, the road that we were on turned into a trail. And the trail got so narrow that we thought, we aren't even going to be able to squeeze this ATV through, let alone a car. And we decided at that point, we ought to turn around and go back a different way. We finally got to the bakery about an hour and a half later. And as we sat outside... Uh, eating the pastries that we had purchased for whatever meal that was by that time of day, uh, we enjoyed watching a fellow traveler and his wife pull up. She had two phones in her hand. <laughs> it doesn't always take you to exactly where you want to go all the time. We were in Volos at another time. It's about three hours north of Athens. And we got the bright idea that we wanted to be able to get back to the big city, to Athens, to Kipseli, to the church that the boys had really enjoyed and had been a part of and loved. And so we thought, that's kind of an early start, but we can do it. And so we jumped on the road following, of course, Google Maps. And um, we literally got on a tollway going the opposite direction. We did make it to church, but it was a little bit late. I mean, Google Maps took us down a road that was washed out, had a creek flowing over it. We were kind of like the old pioneers fording a river. Uh, we went over a bridge that I, to this day, wonder if it was actually truly a pedestrian bridge. But we drove over it in the small econo cars that we had. But the most perilous adventure that we had as we were there in Greece, as far as the vehicles and driving is concerned, was the time that we were in the area of Corinth. And there's a little town not far from Corinth called Kiato. We were staying through this time in Airbnbs, and so... This host had sent us very specific directions, but they looked really complicated on how to get to her house. Now, Kiato, like Corinth, is on the Mediterranean Sea, so you start off at sea level in the town, and her house apparently was straight up. So we decided, you know, these complicated directions are really a little much. We'll trust Google Maps. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so we headed out, and we started up the trail that Google Maps took us up. 
And um, it was steep, really steep. Now, these are little tiny diesel economy cars. Um, I was in one, Melissa was another, because we had the, all of our family was there, and we picked up three others from Greek Bible College that were traveling with us to this place. And so we were literally packed. Some of the people were flying back directly after this, and so we had all of their luggage from the time they had spent in Greece in these tiny cars. We were jammed to the gills. And their stick shift. So we're going straight up this hill, and it narrows to one lane. I mean, like one narrow lane, more like a driveway. So, but we weren't in anyone's driveway. This was supposedly the road. At least that's what Google Maps told us. And uh, so we took it on up. And I'm, what else do you do by this point in time, right? We're, we're there. We've got to make it to the destination. This is where we're going to spend the night. We can't just pull over and camp on the side of the road. It was supposed to take 15 minutes. It couldn't be that difficult. So we kept going until we hit a place in the road, we've all gone through switchbacks, right? This was a switchback like I have never seen before. It was so tight that these tiny cars could not make it around the turn. Now remember that we're not just trying to go around the turn, but you're going around and up, right? So it's steep, and we can't go around the corner. Well, the only thing you can do, what, what do you do at that point? You, <laughs> you bail and go walk. No, not, not true. No, we, uh, I decided the only thing we could do, since you can't go tight enough, is you pull far enough forward and then back up, right? But remember, it's steep. But it was worse than I had realized. Because as we, somewhere in that process, went around the corner and looked behind us, the road was actually crumbling off down a cliff. We're in two stick shift diesel imported economy cars. It's one of those moments where you pull forward. I didn't, I just did the next thing, but my wife was behind me. I pulled forward, I backed up, you know, the e-brake and clutch routine, right? And we made it around the corner on try two. And then she had to come. She doesn't like that quite as well as I do. And she had three young men in the car. She said, no one said a word. <laughs> the destination to which we're going is really, really important. But it's not the only important thing. It really matters how you get there. Right? So when you're going to somewhere, it's super important that you know where it is that you're trying to go. But it's also very important that you know how it is that you are going to get there in the best and the most effective way. And that's why it's so important to think about this as we come to Acts chapter 6 through 8. Because here we've been watching, and I'll show you in a moment in a quick flyover view, that God has been working to build his church. He's been doing amazing things. The people have been coming into the body They've been believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Many, many people have been saved. And we come to Acts 6 and 7 and 8. And it looks like God took a wrong turn. Like he made a mistake in the process. Like he was as fallible as Google Maps in actually not getting to where we ought to be going. The way that we ought to be getting there. But I want to show you this morning. That God 
makes no wrong turns, that he never makes a mistake, and that we can really trust him. So as we come to Acts 6 through 8, let me show you how this plays out as we begin to see the uh, experience that we're tracking through as the church is growing here. We're watching as God is producing explosive growth. So this is the kind of church that everyone wants to be a part of. Watch what's happening in Acts chapter 2.41. We've already talked about it. 3,000 are added to the body. In Acts 2.47, the Lord is adding daily those who are being saved. In Acts 6.7, the disciples are multiplying greatly. I mean, who doesn't want to be a part of a body like that, right? God is building his church. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. He is building his body. People are coming to Christ. Lives are being changed. Everything looks really great. There had been some persecution, but God had delivered those who were being persecuted from the persecution. Sure enough, he's a sovereign God. He's great. He can do great things. In fact, we actually hear in Acts chapter 4, the people gathered to pray after the release of some of their own from prison, exalting God in that way. Oh, sovereign Lord. Yes, because you are actually in control, not just of all the things that control everyone in all of the world, but you are in control of the things that matter to your people. You are in control of what matters to me. Because he's a big God, but he's a big God who is personal, who is, to use the theological term, imminent. He is near. He is right with us. This is our God. And so the church is growing explosively, and he's growing the people in the church. Believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't it be great if our entire body experienced the true control of the Holy Spirit. I, I mean, I think we'd probably have a lot less problems in our body. It wouldn't be great if I were always filled with the Holy Spirit. I'd have a lot less problems in my marriage, in my family, right? This was the kind of place you want to be. Believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. Believers are experiencing true fellowship as they share with one another the things that they have. Believers are praying with power, like we mentioned in Acts chapter 4. In fact, when they concluded that prayer, O sovereign Lord, and remembered what God had done by what he had ordained from long ago in bringing Jesus and even in Pilate's part in the process, which, by the way, Acts 4 asserts, was planned by God. That's what it says. It was all part of God's plan. There were no wrong turns. But when they prayed, you know what happened at the end of that prayer? The place was shaken. Yeah. They prayed and God heard their prayer. What a place to go. Believers filled with the Holy Spirit, experiencing true fellowship, filled with power. And they were giving to the needs. In fact, it said there wasn't a needy person among them. Really? Not one needy person in the whole body? That's right. Not one needy person in the body. And the believers, in addition to that, were growing in purity. Pastor Ralph didn't have time to really talk about it much last week. But in Acts chapter 5, immediately preceding the section we're in now, is the well-known story of Ananias and Sapphira. Do you know what it says at the conclusion of that story? You can look at it if you want. At the conclusion of the story of Ananias and Sapphira, in verse 11 of chapter 5, it says, Great fear came upon all who heard these things. Well, it actually says something else. There's another phrase there. Great fear came upon the whole church. 
Yes, within the church, the fear of God reigned paramount. Yes, inside the body. Yes, those who looked on from the outside said, whoa, what a God who takes holiness so seriously that he will actually personally provide for execution of those who violate his holiness. But those inside the body are looking on and the whole body is filled with the holy fear of God. Wow, what a church. What an amazing God who is building brick by brick this beautiful, astonishing testament to his power and his might. He's doing it in a context of of real difficulty, in a place where it would not be expected that such a work could grow. But here he's doing it. And we can all get to the end of chapter 5 and say, what a great God. His plans are right on track and he's running right on time. And then chapter 6. So chapter 6 opens with a problem in the body. Or at least a need in the body. In chapter 6, you'll see as we begin, it says in verse 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So yes, even in such a dynamic body as this, there were specific needs and even complaints. So they would say, hey, you know, everyone's giving and receiving, but there's a certain category of people that are not getting attended to, and it's these widows of the Greek-speaking Jews. So the apostles, interestingly, did not deny that that was a problem. They took the problem head on. They said, okay, that's important. Let's address the problem. But we have a job to do. And our job, notice what it says here in verse 2. It is not right, the apostles said, that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So, here's the solution. It is a problem. There is a need for a solution. So pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. When we come into chapter 6, I think we want to start saying, okay, so they're addressing practical needs, and that's kind of part of the process, but how is it that this really plays into the big picture? In fact, why did this even make it into the text? And I want to tell you that, again, it's important that we look this morning at this small thing that's taking place in the body because it reminds us that the way we get to the destination really matters. It really matters how we do the work of God, not just that we are attempting to work for God. So let me give you the end of the story as we launch in here in very quick fashion this morning, kind of make the end run. God often builds his people using the workout method. He tears down in order to build greater strength. Yeah, he tears down in order to build greater strength. That's the process by which he does things. Uh, Benjamin, since he came home, has been uh, trying to help me work out. And it sounds a little crazy, but we gloat when we're sore. Well, that's kind of strange. But why? Because, like, well, that must be building muscles, right? 
oh, well, we're doing something good. Something hurts, so it must be great. And if we could take that idea, remember that God is building his body using this very method. This, the process is sometimes painful. Then it helps us to grab what's taking place here in Acts 6 through 8. God is building his people using the workout method, sometimes even tearing down in order to build greater strength. So there are adversaries to growth. They're addressing this need. There are certain men set up. But the real reason, one of the key reasons that this is included in the text here is because God is setting us up to look at one person. So there were how many men chosen to deal with the needs of the Greek-speaking Jews? Seven. Seven men chosen to help with this need. But now we're going to draw it all the way down and look at one man. One of those seven who was specifically used by God. And his story, in a, in a very real sense, begins in verse 8. It says in verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So this is one of those seven men, and he was deliberately going after the work of God, and God's spirit was attending him. I appreciate Pastor Ralph last week. Uh, I don't think I've ever pre heard him preach so fast. And uh, I feel, uh, so I am, uh, so please bear with uh, a little bit of disconnection here this morning as uh, I'm rolling past uh, all kinds of things that we could talk about this morning. So Stephen is the, was one of the seven, and as he preaches full of power, it's no surprise in one sense, that there are opposition, there's opposition, that there are those who rise up to say, I don't know, this sounds like it's, it's awfully hard to believe. And there were, there were people from the synagogue of the freedmen, there were Cyrenians, Alexandrians, from those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen, but they could not stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. There was a dispute there was a triumph in Stephen's un inability to be, to be withstood from the wisdom that he had. And there was, well, there was a deceit, actually, that took place. Because here, as we come to the conclusion of Stephen's argument with these who rose up against him, we find out that they had to do exactly what they'd done to Jesus long before and introduce false witnesses. So in verse Verse 11 of chapter 6, it says, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. It was so much like what they had said of the Lord Jesus when they had false witnesses rise up against him uh, in Matthew chapter 26. At last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. This was, the, this was what they did. They couldn't find any fault. Notice that the first qualification of these seven men was that they were blameless. There was nothing that could be said against them. So there wasn't anything that they could bring as a real accusation. The only recourse they had was to go to false witnesses who would rise up and bring some kind of an accusation against, in this case, Stephen. And so that's exactly what they did. They brought this... this uh, accusation that they'd heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. It was not true, but those who looked at him as they made this accusation saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but we can say this much. That should have been a clue to them 
of the error of their ways. Do you remember anyone else who had a face that was really unique in the Old Testament? It was Moses, right? After he'd spent a whole bunch of time with God. This very Moses that they now said Stephen had blasphemed was the one who in one way he resembled. But that didn't stop them. So Stephen is given a chance to make his defense. And what you find in chapter 7 is essentially Stephen's sermon. It is 52 verses long. We would run out of time just reading what Stephen said, let alone talking about what Stephen said. But I wonder if you, like me, have ever wondered exactly what it is that was the essence of Stephen's long sermon. It's a huge history lesson. It's like a panoramic view of history from Abraham to the present day in New Testament times. But what was it that he was saying? And why, by the way, did it make the people so mad? You ever wondered? What exactly was it that was, I mean, you read it, I'm sure you've read it before, but what was it that, let me show you what Stephen essentially did, just in four quick snapshots, okay? We're going to do this really, really fast. So hang on, 52 verses, four snapshots. You ready? Here we go. This is what Stephen told them. Number one, Stephen told them, you rejected Joseph. That's what he told them. He said, Joseph... The patriarchs, your forefathers, our forefathers, were jealous of Joseph. They sold him into Egypt. This one that was raised up by God for your salvation, you rejected. Point one. Point two. You rejected Moses. Ooh. Um, That hurt. Uh, This one that he said, that they were saying he had blasphemed, he said... You rejected Moses. This Moses, whom they, your forefathers, rejected, God sent as both a ruler and redeemer. Verse 25 covers it in more detail. Verse 35 here. This Moses, whom they, your forefathers, rejected, God sent. He intended to save by him. So you rejected Joseph, that God sent as a deliverer. You rejected Moses, that God sent as a deliverer. And, get this, You rejected the prophets. Yeah, you rejected the prophets. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. In other words, you not only rejected them, you killed them. Well, things were getting pretty hot. But Stephen wasn't done. The prophets who announced the coming Savior. So those that God approved were all rejected by the people. And he said, you were the ones... You rejected Joseph. You rejected Moses. You rejected the prophets who announced the coming righteous one. And get this. You rejected the righteous one himself. You rejected the Messiah. And he minces no words. The righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. The Messiah's blood is on your hands. This one that God sent and approved to save you, you are guilty of killing. Well, that um, was received with great joy, right? No. But, you know, it's interesting. This isn't the first time this kind of message had been preached, and it had a very different response. If you flipped over, we don't have time to do all of the things we'd like this morning, but in Acts chapter 2, this is essentially what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And he said in verse 
uh, 36, let all the house of Israel, this is the conclusion of Peter's sermon, let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him, the Lord, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But they said, instead of saying, kill him, they said, brothers, what shall we do? And 3,000 were added to the church. Yeah. But here, Stephen finishes the message in Acts chapter 7. And in verse 52, he says, Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, verse 54, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I'd actually like to stop and spend all the rest of the time we don't have uh, right here in Acts 7 at the conclusion. Because there, this is verse 54 to the end of the chapter is one of the most, in my opinion, astonishing portions of the entire book of Acts. It truly is one of the most incredible, precedent-setting, and life-giving sections of this entire book. But we don't have time this morning. And it's not my purpose to spend the whole rest of the time looking just at what Stephen did in response to the suffering that, that came to him. So think of it, though, just for a moment. As the rocks are flying, as his bones are breaking, Stephen is praying. And he's not just praying uh, the kind of thing that, uh, that in my flesh I would like to be praying. Get him, God. But he's praying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And prior to that, and, and falling down, verse 60, to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice before he died, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How can he do that? That's the stuff of another message. But it has to do with the fact that he could see his own master in heaven. He was literally seeing the Lord Jesus. And seeing him, he forgave. But the story goes on because Stephen's death, again, a wrong turn. It's like, I think you made a mistake, master builder. I think the architect didn't specify this. This is the wrong way to build a church. This is not what we do. Was actually exactly the right plan, taking them to exactly the right destination at exactly the right time by exactly the right means. Look at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. In verse 2 it tells that devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It's the backwards process of gospel growth. There's a mob execution. The church is scattered. But the gospel spreads. So it's almost like God took that same hammer that's used to fasten the building together. And here knocks a hole wide enough that the whole world can enter in. To the glory and the joy of what one Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, had done. 
Yeah, that's what he did. And it took the death of one of his own. Uh, if you're thinking that sounds pretty hard-hearted of God, read again the end of Acts 7, please. Because it wasn't. It was exactly the right thing, not just for the church as some kind of a great machine that God was building, but it was exactly the right thing for Stephen. Study that. Look at that. Because I think we think, well, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure I can trust a God that cares more about the machinery of a great big body than he cares about me as a person. No, no. Look at Acts 7. He cared about Stephen in a way that's actually difficult to even conceive of. God loved Stephen. And welcomed him standing. So we come through this backwards process. But God is on track. So I wonder as we come through this quickly this morning. as we Let me make mention of a couple other things. Because we haven't talked about chapter 8. So this gospel is spreading. And then there's a couple of specific illustrations of the gospel spreading. Mostly centered on Philip. So Philip is, uh, goes down to Samaria. To where? To Samaria. Yes. To Samaria. And there preaches the gospel in Samaria. And the people are brought into the kingdom. With one particular illustration being Simon the magician who was in Samaria and came to Christ. Then, it's, uh, then Philip goes down to uh, a desert place somewhere on the road. And he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. So the gospel is spreading. Oh, to Ethiopia. Yes, to Ethiopia. And you remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. The gospel is spreading. The persecution crushed the people, but didn't crush the people. It spread the truth. The persecution spread the truth out so that now it's going not only to Samaria, but to, in a sense, the ends of the earth, to Ethiopia, through the Ethiopian eunuch, and then on from there. So we see in chapter 8, really, the gospel spread. Persecution, God doing things in a very upside-down, backwards way from our perspective, but the spread of the gospel. I wonder if, as you come to the end of this, you say, I mean, it sounds great. It's good to know that God was at work in his church. But I wonder how he can build our church. I've explained that the process isn't always pretty, right? I mean, this was the first martyr of the church. And God does use things like that. But let me help you, I think, think of five ways that we can respond to the way that God works. And one is to give God the right to direct your route as well as your destination. I think that sometimes the reason that I don't get where I'm supposed to go is not just because I don't know the right destination, but because I don't want to go through the process of getting there God's way. If I were in the church in those days, in chapter 6 away of the book of Acts, I think I'd have said, no thank you, Lord, let's do this differently. But there wasn't a different way. It was not a wrong turn. It was not Google Maps taking them to the wrong place. It was exactly the right place, but it was very costly. So can you give God the right to direct your route as well as your destination? No God's plan. And then, can you rely on God as your sole source of power and authority? I'd love to walk you through the qualifications of these seven men this morning. They're astounding. The, the qualifications are amazing. They're not only blameless, they're filled with the Spirit, 
And at the end of the day, it notes that they were full, Stephen was full of power. What we like to do is to shortcut through all the other qualifications and get just to the power part. We just want to get to the power part. I just want to do something for God. I just want, give me a work to do for God. I want the power. I want the opportunity. I want to take the kingdom forward. But it's built on who you are, not just what you can do. So these men ultimately relied on God, the Holy Spirit, as their only source of power and their sole authority. So we kind of, we run into some, some challenges with that. Because we want to do something that is beyond what God necessarily wants to do. Psalm 127, one of my personal favorite passages, says it this way. Except the Lord builds the house... The house will not be built. Oh, that's not what it says. That's not what it says. Did, think about it again. Psalm 127. You can check if you want. Follow along. I've got it in my head. Except the Lord builds the house. Did it say the house would not be built? The labor is vain. It might get built, but it's a vain labor. Except the Lord keeps the city, he goes on to say. Except the Lord keeps the city. In other words, unless the watchman is watching, it's vain if the Lord's not watching. So how, how big an advantage is it if you can tell your city that the enemy is advancing on your city, but you have no power to deal with it? Well, it's not too great, right? So except the Lord does the work, it's vain for you to do it. Know your job. Interestingly enough, the... Apostles are uh, knowing their job, you find here, and they stuck to their guns, what they were supposed to be doing. We get sidetracked trying to do anything else, trying to be something else than what God wants us to be. These men, Stephen particularly, relied on God as his sole source of power and authority. And then expect God to use bad things for his great good ends. We often focus on Romans 8.28. But Romans 8.31 and 32 are likewise paired to the idea of God using everything, yes, everything, for his good ends. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? God who gave his son. Is he going to let you experience something in the process of doing his work that isn't the very best? Paul's argument is no. Absolutely not. This God is in control of everything. Everything. But it's a faith prospect to actually hold on to that. Because it sure doesn't look good. When you, when you think of what happened to the church in these chapters... This was the only reality that they could hold on to and come away with any sense of certainty. The God who said he would be with them. The God who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That he was really doing it even though it sure looked like the gates of hell were prevailing against it. Expect God to use bad things for his great Good ends. Know that truth, as Stephen did in chapter 7. And then see God behind your circumstances 
even your trials. This is what David's counsel was to his own son Solomon as he made the handoff of the kingdom in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. He said, know the God of your father. Know the God of your father. You know, quite honestly, this is the essence of what really theology is all about. It's, after all, knowing God. But what we'd like to do when we look at this kind of a thought, we gut the power from the concept by trying to know things about God without actually knowing him. And it's easy to do. You can recite the correct answers. You can tell things that are true about God without actually experiencing those things for yourself that are who God really is. For example, it's easy to say, I believe that God is faithful. It's another thing not to worry. Right? But if God is faithful, why am I... Well, it's because actually in practical, down-to-earth living, I'm struggling to believe it. Right? That's theology. So see God behind your circumstances, even your trials. That's what Stephen did at the end of this chapter. He actually, as the rocks are flying, as, the, as his bones are being crushed, he's seeing God beyond his trials. And then wait for God to multiply when he divides. What looked like a ruin for the early church was actually the opening to an unprecedented day of victory and advance. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It's a lot like the story of Joseph that Stephen himself referenced. And you'll remember that in chapter 45 and again in chapter 50, Joseph says, God was up to something good, even though you meant something evil. So God sent before me before you to preserve a remnant alive. God, God meant for good what you meant for evil, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. We've flown through these three chapters, and we're late even then. But let me ask you to think about one thing as we conclude that might just help you to take this all home. So much information. So much data. What do we do with that? I want to remind you of the end run. God often builds his people using the workout method. He tears down in order to build greater strength. How will you trust him in the process of building you and building our church according to his grand plan? I would like to ask you to do something more than just answer that with a really general answer like, I'm going to trust God. That's my normal way to respond to messages like this. It's a weakness, it's a problem, but it is the normal way to respond. Could I ask you to do something a little more? and to specifically address a particular area of trouble that you have, or an issue in our church that you believe is really a problem, and that you would trust God with that. So maybe get something in your mind. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a communication breakdown. Maybe it's something that you just don't like, or a person that irritates you. 
many of the problems we have are all rotating around people. This whole set of chapters is actually, if we took it from another perspective, really looking at problems and people God uses to solve problems. That would be another way we could look at this set of chapters. So a lot of your problems that you're going to name that are specific problems are related to people. But not all of them. It could be other issues. Are you willing to trust God with the process? A number of years back, my grandmother was dying. And she made an interesting statement that I've never forgotten. I'm not afraid to die. It's the dying. That's called the process. But do you know that God is big enough that you can trust him with the destination and the process by which he takes you to the destination? That you can trust him not only with where you're going when you die, but everything that happens 